One quick word before we get started. The interview this week is with Dr. Susan Rogers and was recorded via Teams call, so the audio quality is not as clear as it usually is. I hope you still enjoy my interview, and without further ado, here we go. Hello and welcome to the final episode of MusicCast. Today we'll be talking to producer, audio engineer, Berkeley professor, Dr. Susan Rogers. Dr. Rogers has worked with numerous artists such as David Byrne, Bare Naked Ladies, Robin Ford, and Prince. She's also recently published her book, This Is What It Sounds Like. Dr. Rogers, it's great to have you on the show. Hi, thank you for having me on, Robert. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for being here. I appreciate the time um, you took out of your day to be here. So I'm going to just kind of open um, and with some like lighter questions um, just to like kind of break the ice in ease in. So the first question I have is what kinds of music do you like? Well, like most people, I like a variety of music and I'll, I'll choose music like most people do to serve a different function. So in, in truth, I think my home base, I don't, I shouldn't say I think, I know my home base is soul music. That's my absolute favorite. That's my go-to. But I also like jazz and I like the old school jazz, the bebop, that kind of stuff I love. I like uh, alternative indie. It's not my number one favorite, but I've worked in alternative indie more than any other style, so I like that as well. I like classic rock, mostly the blues-based stuff. I prefer the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin. I like Latin music. I love Eddie Palmieri, Charles Palmieri, uh, things like that I love. So as usual, it's a variety. Nice. I had a, a dog growing up named Coltrane. Um, uh, yes, um, a big, big jazz uh, and hard bop fan. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, and second one is, would uh, would you mind sharing the story of your career? Yeah, I'll try to make it brief because it's a very long career. But um, I wanted terribly when I was a kid to contribute to record making. And I'm not a musician, I'm not a songwriter. I had zero desire to perform or write, but I wanted to contribute to help bring records into the world. For me, being female in a male dominated profession, there was one route I could take where my gender didn't matter. And that was audio technician repairing the equipment. So I started as an audio tech in Hollywood, California in 1978. After five years had passed, I was working for Crosby, Stills & Nash at their studio, and then I got the call to go work with my favorite artist in the world, which was Prince. So Prince hired me. I moved to Minnesota in 83, worked as his technician, and right away he put me in the engineering chair. So I was his engineer for a number of years. When our relationship parted ways, I came back to L.A. and then worked variously as an engineer or a mixer or a producer on a variety of records. I had a big hit with Bare Naked Ladies in the late 90s, back when producers would get those big royalty checks. Mm -hmm. So with my royalty money, in 2000, I left the music business and did eight straight years of college to get my Ph.D. at Music Perception and Cognition at McGill. And then... Uh, as soon as I got my degree, 2008, I came right to Berkeley in Boston to teach in two disciplines, two departments, music production and engineering. And I taught um, in the sciences, in liberal arts, I taught music cognition and psychoacoustics. That's super cool. Um, uh, was it kind of difficult leaving uh, engineering for more of a like production 
based role or what did you have any like second thoughts on that or was it kind of just a natural progression of how you wanted to go everybody has second thoughts the first time they're doing something you're not sure whether or not it's going to work uh, i was no different i did not feel i was qualified to be a producer in time i learned that i was qualified it takes you a little minute to recognize what it is you have to contribute and to feel strong about your contribution and as any musician or student would to analyze your strengths and weaknesses what are you bringing that is worthwhile to this project and what isn't your area of expertise including those areas for which you have zero appetite you learn to kind of avoid those areas and suggest that someone else would cover that. So for me that meant that if they needed an arranger, if they needed a co-songwriter, you don't want me cuz I don't do that. But if you want an engineer who's a, a devoted and actually I might say expert listener, if you want a, a producer who's got engineering and mixing skills, then you want me. Awesome. Yeah, I know with what we're doing just in like the classes, it's been like engineering heavy all throughout. Uh, but I really enjoy like when you just get to get to go in the studio and then kind of like sit back and then listen to like what the musicians are doing. Um, I think it's really awesome to have like have like both sides. Um, yeah, and the producer's ear, it's it's a subtle art and it's a difficult one because you have to gauge what each performer is capable of. Mm-hmm. No one's going to tell you the answer to that question. You have to decide for yourself if what you're hearing is the very best that that performer is capable of giving. So you have to kind of be like in an analogy someone who drives cars for a living, maybe a race car driver, and you have to decide based on this vehicle how fast should you take that turn. If you put too much pressure on that gas pedal, you'll spin out of the turn. Too little pressure, you'll lose the race. Mm-hmm. But you have to decide what that car can handle. And likewise, being a producer, the tricky part is hearing what performers are giving you and judging the distance between what you're hearing and what might in theory be their best performance. That's cool. Uh, so uh, we'll move on. I know you kind of touched on it earlier working with different artists or um, kind of having a specific skill set, uh, but what has working with artists who kind of differ from uh, music that you like or uh, different things like that? Uh, or in just in so many different areas, what has that kind of taught you as a producer or maybe just even a music listener? So I've never taken on a job with music that I didn't like. I mean, that would be a, a total disservice to the artist. So when you hear the artist's prior work or their demos and you're being asked to contribute as an engineer, a mixer, a producer, what everyone must do is the responsible thing and answer the question for yourself, can I add anything to this that mm. would make it better? Not can I add anything that would make me like it better? That's the wrong question to to ask. You're asking is there to the best of my objective assessment room for my aesthetic in this work of art and would it take it where the artist 
hopes they'll go? And if you think the answer is yes, you decide, yeah, I think if my ear was on this aspect of the music, which might be the writing or the performing, or it might be the arranging, it might be the grooves, the, the melody, the rhythm, it could be any number of things. I think if my ear were on it, it would help this artist get over the finish line to their stated, to achieve their stated aim. So yeah, that, that's kind of how you do it. You don't have to have deep love. This doesn't have to be your favorite music, but you certainly have to like it and feel like you could be a part of it. Awesome. And then uh, another question I have is, how have the changes in the music industry shaped your career and forced you to adapt? Um, I was reading, um, this is what it sounds like, and then there's a, a big section on uh, DAWs coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk a lot about kind of just like the changes um, and waves that made in the industry. Um, and I kind of wanted to, I guess, hear it again <laughs> and talk a little more. So I left the music business professionally at the just right time. I didn't see it coming, but it looks like I did. So I left in 2000, right when DAWs replaced analog tape, right when Napster changed how we consume music. We went from selling records to sharing records. So I didn't work, I haven't worked in the new paradigm. My students have. And uh, artists I worked with in the past have had to adapt to this new paradigm. I'm aware that if I had stayed in the business, I'd have a lot of new problems to solve. (laughs) One is the huge and obvious problem of making money. In my era, people would go to the store and buy a record or they'd buy a CD, buy a cassette. You know what I mean? They'd buy a recorded work of art straight up if they wanted it. And now it's it's not that simple. Everybody has everything. So I'd have to make music for the modern era, which features a lot more repetition. The sound of it is also quite different. Music is compressed in different ways now to allow for consumption over earbuds and headphones primarily. Almost none of my students ever listen on loudspeakers. They have no use for loudspeakers. So all of that is brand new. I would have to learn new techniques and I'd have to learn new marketing skills and ways of of making money at this profession. Yeah. Um, w- one of the classes I took was as basically like the future of media. Um, and it seems like, I don't know, everything just since I like talked about in 2000 is like, you can try to predict all you want, but the reality of it is like, we, I don't no one really knows where things are going. Um, but I think it's also, um, kind of interesting. Um, to yeah. I thought you were going to say no one can predict what's going to work or not. And I was going to quickly add, that's always been the case. Yeah. The history of popular music is full of stories of people, record labels or producers or bands or artists thinking that we've got a hit, this is going to hit, and it totally flops. And the other way around of, of tracks that you thought, eh, it's just this little stupid song. Let me just put it on the record and get it out there. And that ends up being your career-making single. So we can never tell for sure what's going to happen. Technology is advancing much faster, much faster than the human brain does. So the brain evolves slowly enough that the one thing we can safely predict is that the human brain is going to always crave rhythm Mm. and melody and harmony and lyrics that evoke 
certain scenes or solve certain problems for us or express something that we may feel down deep inside and aren't really in touch with. So we're always going to want those elements because our brains are the same as they were thousands of years ago. So that means that people will use the technology to find new ways to to deliver those elements. That's the changing part. But if you keep your, your ear on the basics, you can do all right in any era of music. Cool. Yeah, it's um, definitely like the medium uh, through which like we share music and things. Um, I think is great. Uh, I mean, even just like think about like, okay, it used to be like a physical thing and now it's ones and zeros that's computed. Um, that's true. But when you think about it, we've got it relatively easy compared to the changes in visual art. Like what would Rembrandt think if he could see a Jackson Pollock painting? He'd be like, what the hell is this? Because in those days, their job was to capture reality and they mastered their craft so that they could master the art of pushing paint around on canvas to get it to reflect light in different ways, depending on what the material was. Hard as hell. But the maestros were the ones who captured reality. And um, there was a revolution and with the invention of the camera. And suddenly visual artists realized we don't have to capture reality anymore. In fact, Jackson Pollock and people of that era were saying, we don't have to represent anything we can just use paint or even in the case of james terrell we can just use light to get you to have a visual artistic experience that's very satisfying so music hasn't come nearly that far we've revolutionized music but it still uses four four time signature we're still hewing to the same basic tempo. We've still got melodies that are recognizable and harmony and lyrics that we understand. So yeah, music music makers have nothing to complain about. The visual artists have it much worse. <laughs> yeah, um, I totally agree. Uh, so moving on, I just have a couple questions that were kind of um, related to the, the topic of the podcast but also more so just things that i was curious about um and so the first one is when you work with musicians who have different uh, listener profiles than you how do you approach it and what does it teach you uh in your book you talk a lot about um the listener profile that a person has and how understanding it um uh, understanding your listener profile helps uh, you connect better to music and i was just curious on uh, how you go about working with someone who likes different things um, or um, different things of that nature? It can be difficult. So let's imagine, for example, that you're in the studio with an artist and you've had all these pre-production meetings, you've agreed on what you're doing, you've done some rehearsal with this artist and you've, you've worked through the song together and maybe you've made changes to the song. You've, you've decided on the style that this record is going to be and uh, you, get, you think you've had all the conversations and then you're in the studio and you're just getting sounds and that musician says to you when are we going to do something about that snare sound and you say what do you mean do something about it and they say well we got to we got to change that snare sound and you realize that the record they're hearing in their mind's ear is different from the one you're hearing in your mind's ear now that's 
difficult, but it's also the good stuff because it pushes you into a zone where you may learn to adopt things you hadn't thought of before as actually being really good ideas. So you've got to be open-minded. That's where creativity comes from, being open-minded. And then you also have to be firm enough to trust your own instinct. If, if your artist, let's say, going back to that same example, if they push you to get a snare sound that you think, this totally won't work, you better be prepared to say why you think mm. it won't work. If you can answer the why question, then you're having a conversation and then you can resolve those difficulties or, or at least uh, air them out, you know? You, you won't resolve all of them, but it, that that's how you grow as a producer and how they grow as an artist too. Awesome. Um, and then the second question I have uh, in this section is what parts of the brain are active when you listen to music versus when you perform or, or a player perform a piece of music? Oh, that's really good. So this has been studied, um, how musicians listen and how non-musicians listen. And I know your question was regarding performing versus not performing, but it's somewhat similar. So when trained musicians listen to music, they activate more of the motor cortex and circuits involved in action. When non-musicians like myself listen, we do that to a far lesser extent. What we're likely to do, this is what I love uh, about, uh, about this, is we're likely to go into our own heads and activate our default network, the network of nuclei that are concerned with a sense of self, self-imagery, self-awareness, self-consciousness. So non-musicians aren't thinking about so much how it feels to play this music, what it would feel like to be on output and express it. We're living right in the land of input, absorbing this music and making it a private and satisfying, you hope, experience. This is why a non-musician like myself or the late great Gus Dudgeon and many other successful producers can be successful because as Gus Dudgeon put it, I asked him, I said, how is it possible, Gus, for you to be such a successful producer because you're a non-musician? By the way, Gus Dudgeon produced all the, the main albums in Elton John's career. For uh, decades, he was Elton John's producer. So uh, just about, Gus Dudgeon has sold more records than just about any record producer who ever lived. Anyway, he was lighting his pipe and he said to me, well, I don't have to be a musician, love. The musicians are on the other side of the glass. I need to be the non-musician in the room. So yes, we do listen differently, musicians and non-musicians, because the non-musicians are limited in that they can't accurately imagine what it feels like to do that. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, it makes total sense, but I never thought of it that way before. Um, and then do you know if there is any difference when you sing or how you, how the brain acts when you sing a song versus like when you would play an instrument or would that be relatively the same? No, it's different. And that's also been studied. So there's a, a tract, a white matter tract in the brain that goes from the language areas of the brain to the language production, the speech areas of the brain. Uh, it's called the arcuate fasciculus and white matter is the axon. So it's basically, you think of it as the, as the highways in your brain that carry the signals. Turns out 
that uh, it grows bigger and stronger and faster, more robust in musicians compared to non-musicians, but it grows especially robust in trained singers. So trained singers have an advantage over other musicians in that they've been using their instrument their whole lives because it's right here in their throat. They have a disadvantage in that they start their formal music training a little bit later because often they have to wait for the voice to mature. So they have to wait until after puberty. It's not the same as starting violin when you're four years old or piano when you're two or something like that. You gotta wait before you can really get, get trained on it. But what happens is in the brain of singers, you develop these super strong connections between the language areas, the music areas, and the motor areas three important regions for music processing. All three of those get enhanced in, in singing. Um, now in, in instrumental performance, of course, the motor areas get incredibly advanced and that would be up here at the top of the brain. And of course the music processing, pitch processing areas for most of us in the right hemisphere get very well developed. But the singers add that extra component of language to the auditory skills that they develop. Nice, that's super cool. Um, cool, so I have uh, then like the content of the um, episode. Uh, I wanted to start off with talking a little about melody um, just because it kind of follows the progression which I had like published the episodes I started talking about melody um, and then beats and rhythm and then I ended with like a conversation on music theory. Um, and so I have a couple questions on uh, melody. And the first one I have is, how do poems differ from lyrics in a song? Um, and specifically like the way we perceive them and the way our brain reacts to hearing poetry versus listening to um, a song melody or lyrics. And that's somewhat studied, although a lot more work remains to be done. So it's said that poetry is words put to meter and rhythm and that sung music is words put to pitches. Mm. Recent study showed, and this is mind blowing, that there's a region of the brain, little network, that responds exclusively to music with sung lyrics. Mm. It's not all about instrumental music. It's not about uh, spoken word or poetry. What it loves, this little cluster of neurons, is uh, song music. That's kind of mind blowing. So there obviously are regions of overlap. The inferior frontal gyrus on the left-hand side is concerned with uh, language. That would be Broca's area for those who study psychology. Wernicke's area is also concerned with language. The arcuate fasciculus joins them both. And they are active when we, when we perform singing and when we read a poem. Uh, and they're somewhat active, of course, when we listen to song music and when we listen to poetry. But song music is music is words rather put to pitches, and that's going to engage the right hemisphere and circuits involved in pitch processing. Uh, so it's going to be a little bit different than poetry. For nearly all of us, our left hemisphere is a faster auditory processor than the right hemisphere, because language, speech, comes by in a very fast stream of consonants and vowels. So on that left hemisphere, bam, 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 we're paying close attention to speech consonants so we can parse the words that were just said. 
but music requires a slower processor because an isolated pitch sitting there all by itself means nothing. A pitch is only informative when it's followed by other pitches. So we can figure out here's the, here's the key, here's the scale, here are the notes I can anticipate. So sung music is going to engage that fast and the slow processor, whereas poetry, pretty much just the fast processor. And then of course the motor cortex for the rhythm. Cool. That's that is definitely mind blowing. Um, that's really cool. Um, cool. And then, so how does our perception of language shape our taste in music, if it uh, does at all? Yeah, it does. So I just used my voice with a particular pitch change to emphasize that really meant yes, it does. So there are norms in every culture of the world for using your voice to express what you're feeling. So it turns out that listeners can listen to instrumental, classical, orchestral music and accurately, better than chance, identify the native language of the composer. Hmm. Not every language has been studied, of course, but this was shown in French, German, English, and I believe that they included in a subsequent study some Asian languages like Vietnamese and things like that. So when we use our voice, our language might be stress-timed or it might be syllable-timed. It might have very frequent pitch peaks or infrequent. It has a certain cadence to express whether you're saying something sarcastically or bitterly or humorously. And we build those into the musical phrases that we write in order to convey this is what this piece of music is, is trying to get across. And this is why we can definitely enjoy a song that's being sung in a language that we don't speak. We don't necessarily need the words to make any sense for us to get something from it. However, um, people do tend to prefer music that comes from their own culture and that was composed by and or performed by people who speak their own language because they recognize the subtle cues the, the from the cadence of the voice. Nice. Yeah, I know. Um, I've been in band since fifth grade and um, my um, primary school uh, band teacher was always like, music is the one universal language. And I think that's still true, but it's uh, more like finding out more about how we listen to music and perceive music. Um, it's very much dependent on like where you're from in the world. Um, and it's uh, totally different from what I thought before. Um, some yeah. things are universal and some things aren't. Um, studies that have asked people to listen to music from um, another culture, culture they're unfamiliar with, and, and to see if they can correctly judge the intended emotion in the piece. We do that so much better when we're listening to music from our own culture than we do when we're listening to music from another culture because the way we use our voices to express emotions differs a little bit. But here's something mind-blowing. There was a study that recruited participants from Denmark and from China. And what they wanted to know was, can instrumental music affect our sense of taste and our mm. cravings? So first they had to, this is so cool, they had to have composers compose music that evoked a sense of sweetness 
saltiness, bitterness, and sourness. Now you think, how do you do that? They did. So composers gave them these pieces of music and it, they were put up in front of uh, a panel of judges and the judges were correctly able to identify this is sweet music, salty music, sour and bitter. Sour and bitter uh, were not as easily recognized as sweet and salty, but still much better than chance. So now they had their four pieces of music. Then in two countries, Denmark and China, they brought participants into the lab. And all these participants had to do is look at pictures of food on the screen and select which one they most felt like eating. So in half the trials, they showed them salty foods, potato chips, peanuts, pretzels, six or so different salty foods. Pick the one that you'd most like to eat right now. And on the sweet trials, they did the same thing, but with cookies and cake and sweet stuff. And what the researchers did is they changed the music. Some of the trials, they would play the salty music for the sweet foods or the sweet foods for the salty. Anyway, and I just realized I just messed up the methods. I guess they showed both at the same time. They showed the salty foods and the sweet foods. And they asked people, what do you most feel like eating right now? And they would either play the sweet music or the salty music or the sour, the bitter, whatever. And sure enough, in both countries, the sweet music would cause people to choose sweet foods more often, and salty music would cause them to choose salty foods. Now, bear in mind, this is instrumental music. So there are cues built into melody and harmony that have some association with other modalities. This is called cross-modal perception. So why would certain melodies and harmonies make you think I'd like something sweet right now or something salty. What that tells us is that there are processes going on in our, in our bodies that are responsible for desire and wanting and, and things like that, that are affected by music. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, do you, uh, sorry, is there like, can you listen to those songs that they use for the um, the trial? I'm interested to hear like just uh, what. Possibly, I, I don't know if the researchers made that music available, but I can tell you the lead author's name. And if you go to Google Scholar, uh, you might be able to to see if he's got a website or something. It's Charles Spencer, S P E N. I think it's C E R. Charles Spencer. And if you Google and Google Scholar, Charles Spencer taste music that kind of stuff his papers will pop up because he's he's a leader in that sort of investigation and you may be able to find um maybe he's got a supplemental website where you can hear that awesome yeah definitely i, I would put that on uh dinner party playlists <laughs> um would be cool um cool so the last question for this uh section um is how do what makes a melody fit with a song um so like when you listen to obviously like a song is like an entity um and if you remove a melody and put like a different one from another song on it it uh audibly sounds incorrect um and so i'm interested to um figure out like what about that melody makes it fit um above just like the music theory rules that um guide that yeah, it's a good question. So are you talking about a hypothetical scenario where the words remain exactly the same? 
Yeah. Okay. Well, think of it this way. The lyrics are text and the music is subtext. So the melody is the leader of the pack when it comes to conveying the subtext. So the the words are saying, here's what's going on with me, or here's what I think is going on with you, or here's what I'm trying to trying to get across right now. But the melody is adding an emotional shade mm. to those words. And you can, if you're producing a record, opt to contrast the words with that shade, make them totally different things, or make them very, very complementary or something in between. So the melody is often responsible, along with harmony, for conveying the backstory, for conveying the underlying emotional tone that caused these words to be written. So this, I mean, a, a, a very uh, obvious example would be where really happy lyrics are accompanied by sad music and vice versa. Sad, bitter, disappointed lyrics are accompanied by happy music. It doesn't happen that often, but when it happens, that's a record with some emotional depth. The music is, the melody in particular, is telling us more of the story. Cool. Um, all right, so I'm going to segue into like the beat and rhythm section of um, this. Mm. Uh, and I've been told a lot of times by a few of my uh, either like private oboe instructors or like band teachers um, that rhythm outweighs pretty much all other aspects in music in terms of importance because you can have a song with just rhythm, but you can't have a song with just anything else. Um, and would you agree with this? And then why or why not? Oh, it reminds me of something Prince used to say, Beethoven had nary a drum kit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think, you know, the, the, the vast canon of human music, I think we've got a, a lot of music that did not emphasize the rhythm. They emphasized melody and harmony. Um, and in popular record making, something we say so often, it might as well be true, and that's that the vocal is the most important thing on a record. So the, to say that something is the most important thing, it's too broad of a statement. That's like saying people really like food. Yeah, yeah, they do. But let's let's put a finer point on that. So, in some styles of music, rhythm is carrying most of the weight, and in other styles of music, it's simply not. Certainly, let's say you do a, a folk record. And there's no drums there. And you've got fiddle. You got banjo. Your guitar. No drums. Of course, there's rhythm because these players are just locking and they're expressing the synchronicity in their bodies. So in that sense, we can say that that rhythm is vitally important. If they're all out of time with each other, the record is going to fall apart, even if the melody is good. Um, what we can say from the neuroscience perspective is that rhythm is the most easily processed evidence for this is the fact that little infants, toddlers, two years old, by the time they can stand up and hold their little bodies upright, are compelled to want to synchronize their bodies to a rhythm. Little babies bounce and try to march and clap in time when they are two years old. That's what we humans do because it feels so good to synchronize our little motor system with someone else's. So these circuits in the brain that extract rhythm from a musical signal, whether it has drums on it or not, 
tell the body, it would feel good. The, 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 this thing is pulsing like this. I want to pulse like that too. And if that tempo is in that zone, you know, between 80 and 120 beats per minute, you're going to want to lock your body to it. In that sense, rhythm perception is the most primal, the fastest, the first to develop, and something that is the easiest to process. It takes more experience to process melody, and of course it takes life experience to really get meaning from lyrics. That's really interesting. I, I talked with a couple of different professors here at OU, um, and uh, one of them was Dr. Talley. He's uh, the director of bands here, and he was saying they do a um, summer concert series uh, for Athens uh, community every year, and they always play like Sousa marches. Uh, said if, if there's one thing that I can count on is that people are going to stand up and clap to a Sousa march. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's um, just cool um, to know for even just like crowd pleasing things. Yes. Um, and if you want to tie that to a modern success story, relatively modern, you think of Queen's iconic, we will, we will rock you. And the whole idea was to have people participate. They played arena shows at this point in their career, and they wanted to get the crowd involved. So stomp, stomp, clap, stomp, stomp, clap. Everyone could do it pretty much. So that's a way to get people engaged and feel like they're making music along with you. They chose rhythm, not melody and not lyrics to um, quickly and easily harness people's desire to participate. Yeah. Um, and kind of like uh, juxtaposed to that, because uh, it doesn't really deal with uh, rhythm, is like Jacob Collier and um, what he does in his concerts. He has the, the crowd sing pitches and he does stuff on top of it and creates melodies from the the crowd i think it's um just really cool yes my my old colleague and dear friend tommy jordan from gagita would do that i saw tommy in paris divide up an audience into six separate parts and this was 20 years ago six separate separate parts to do rhythm and melody and harmony and people do like that they like to participate it makes their the show memorable but we always have to remember there are some people who don't like that Mm. There are some people who think, no, man, I paid you to make music <laughs> for me. Don't you be engaging me to make music for you. Uh, with Jacob Collier, you know what to expect. You know that's coming. With the band that Tommy was with, you didn't necessarily know that was coming. So we have to be careful about that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, cool. So then the second question I have is, are there any rhythms that you find that you're drawn to? Like I know for I, for example, really like syncopated rhythms. Um, and just like feeling the offbeats um, and things like that. Oh, isn't that nice? I love that question so much because it's such a deep mystery where our taste in rhythm comes from. Who knows? For me, bass guitars have four strings and toms, well, there should be no more than two. <laughs> I like kick, snare, hi-hat, and every now and then a tom. I'm not a huge fan of, of the big tom fills and the crashing cymbals and stuff like that. No, my favorite drummer who ever lived was the late great Al Jackson Jr. from Stax Records. And Al has this way of having his snare drum come down on the two and four, I would guess millisecond or two after I think it's gonna come down. So on every measure, 
I get that pause of thinking, here it comes. And he makes me wait an extra millisecond or two, which feels so good when that snare comes down. In contrast, drummers can play the exact same beat and push that snare and have that snare land a little bit sooner than when I thought it was going to land. And I don't like it. It doesn't feel as good to my body, whereas I've, I've done this in classrooms. To other listeners, it feels perfect. So we all have an internal physiology. We all have a different timekeeper and a different preference for where we like our beats to land. Where that comes from is a deep mystery that is uh, still under investigation. I know that it's there. I don't know where it comes from or what causes it. That's cool. Um, I, I was talking to different like music therapy professors here, um, and uh, one of them was saying that a lot of times she'll get um, clients come in and they're uh, usually um, teenage, um, young adult age, um, and they'll be concerned that like heavy metal or um, like punk like calms them down. Um, and she said that the one of the reasons for that is that those types of music have a really steady like driving force behind them um, with the rhythm and everything that they do. Um, yeah, so it's just interesting to see the the broad spectrum of different rhythms people like if they get sooner on the beat or after the beat. Oh, but let me offer another um, factor in that, and that has to do with your resting arousal rate. Mm -hmm. Young people, children in particular, have a really fast resting arousal rate, meaning their nervous system, it's clocking in at a much faster tempo than a lot of other people. And really fast, undeniable, insistent music can sound calming to someone whose resting arousal rate is going at that pace. So if your internal clock is going and you're listening to music that's bum, 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 <laughs> it's going to be very anxiety producing. In contrast, when you hear music that matches your physiology, it feels like a breath of fresh air, like, ah, I'm home. So a lot of parents sometimes make the horribly misguided mistake of assuming that because their kid is into metal or, or punk, maybe American hardcore, that their kid must be suppressing violent tendencies. There is zero evidence to say that that is true. As a matter of fact, the work of Adrian North and some others uh, looked at that back in 2005 and Adrian North showed uh, something that I observed to be true over at Berkeley, which is that the kids who are into heavy metal tend to be some of the gentlest, sweetest people you're ever going to meet. Mm. They love that music because it calms them down and makes them feel good. That's really cool. Um, and I have one final question for this section, uh, and it's when you're producing a record, how do you approach guiding musicians to fitting together rhythmically, and why is it so important for them to be solid in that way? Oh, yeah. Yeah, if the rhythm isn't tight, uh, it makes it impossible or at least very difficult for your listeners to anticipate what's coming next. Anticipating what's coming next is a tiny little thing that subconsciously leads to great enjoyment. 
all we have to do is look at little children and household pets and see the benefits we get from having a regular schedule for some activities. If they know, if your dog knows that supper time is every night at six o'clock or your little five-year-old knows that every Saturday we do this or just whatever, being able to predict what's going to happen and then having it come true feels really good to mm -hmm. young nervous systems and it feels good to older nervous systems too so when that rhythm is tight that offers an assurance to our spotlight of attention that says you can go ahead and move your spotlight of attention over to those lyrics over to that sweet melody because i'm going to keep time for you and i'll kind of let you know subconsciously when eight bars has has elapsed so that you can pull your spotlight of attention back around and anticipate the end of the verse, anticipate the end of the course and where the song's gonna go from there. You move your attention around to the good stuff. So when a band is, is incoherent, it makes us feel a little bit unmoored from reality and it evokes a tiny little sense of danger because you feel like the people who are making this sound aren't in control. And that makes us feel uncomfortable. Mm. Um, you mentioned uh, eight bars uh, just now, and I uh, recalled reading, or I guess I listened to the uh, the audio version of your book, um, uh, hearing that in the book. Um, and is there a specific reason that we like eight bar phrases as uh, as a culture? Um, is or is it just because it's what has come to be standard, and so we're familiar with it? Or is there a deeper, uh, more psychological reason for it? As far as I know, it's just that it's um, it's predictable because it, it is the norm, as you said. It's the standard. Um, I, I wrote this in the book, but it is, for better and for worse, true. That Western tonal music is the lingua franca mm. of the musical world because Western tonal music has expanded its reach into every corner of planet Earth. And in popular musical forms, eight bars is such a standard unit of measurement, as well as a 4-4 time signature. That's why it's called common time. It's so standard. 100 beats per minute, that tempo, that range is pretty standard. So people have been exposed to this basically their whole lives, and it's very easy to musically digest. It's very, very predictable. Awesome. Um... Cool. Uh, so then our, our final section is music theory. Um, and music theory is something that I've always found really, really fascinating, but know like nothing about. Um, even though I've taken like courses um, throughout high school and then now throughout um, college. Um, and then when I heard about psychoacoustics um, and music cognition and things like that, I've noticed a lot of kind of like similarities between the two. Um, so the first question is, how does music theory and psychoacoustics relate to each other and how do they uh, differentiate from each other? Psychoacoustics is the exploration of the nuts and bolts, the mechanism of acoustic processing. Acoustic mm -hmm. is the word meaning it came from the air. It's, uh, it came through our hearing system from the air. So once it does that, once a, a pressure wave in the range of hearing is received by our ear, at what point does that mechanical activity become music? Mm. Great mystery, because that has to happen. Now to your, to your inner ear in the cochlea, 
It's just mechanical activity. It's the basilar membrane of the cochlea going up and down in certain spots at certain frequencies, at certain amplitudes, and you're comparing the phase of the left and right ears. It's just a signal. It's nothing special. But at some point, that signal is interpreted as being musical. Various regions of the brain handle this. So psychoacoustics is concerned with some of the same questions as music theory. Namely, what's the difference between consonance and dissonance? Now, in music theory, they're interested in how it's used. When would you apply consonance and when would you apply dissonance? How do you learn to recognize it? What's it made of? What distinguishes the two? In psychoacoustics, they're asking the question, does the brain care? Does a brain draw a difference between a tritone and a perfect fifth? Turns out the answer is yes, the brain does care. And it has to do with the physical construction of our auditory system. The auditory system happens to boost certain frequencies that are complementary to one another. In complementary in the sense that the ancient Greeks, Pythagoras and those guys, um, 500 years BC, I think it is, before the Common Era, they were investigating the mathematical relationships of musical intervals, and they realized some of these sound sweet and some sound kind of sour. Hey, the sweet ones must have come from the gods and the sour ones come from the devil. Well, now we know, no, it's just the way the human auditory system is constructed that makes some intervals sound like they kind of go together a little bit better than other intervals. From an artistic perspective, it's all good. <laughs> From an artistic perspective, we can do anything we want. And if people find it pleasing, then, then so be it. Many people do. Those with formal musical training are much more inclined to draw a distinction between consonance and dissonance, between the tritone and the perfect fifth. Mm. Just like me, without formal training, those two intervals are more or less equivalent to us. That's cool. And yeah, um, when I started out um, just like learning more about theory, one of the first things that we learned was um, that people don't like the tritone. People do like the perfect fifth. Um, and that was pretty much the end of the conversation. And it was, OK, when you do your final project, don't use a tritone in your in your corral. And because it was like using um, like we had we had to uh, use like Bach corrals, like rules for it. And our professor was like, don't use the tritone. But I was, I always wanted to. <laughs> yeah, good for you. So if you look at the work of Carol Crumhansel from the late 70s and early 80s, and you look at her assessments of tonality in folks who were expert musicians, beginning, I think novice, maybe intermediate musicians and non-musicians, major difference. My own work in, in the perception of dyads showed major differences between how musicians and non-musicians process auditory signals for two reasons. One is that formal musical training, knowledge of good and bad, let's say in a music theoretic sense, is influencing how you perceive. So knowledge is coming down and influencing what you hear. Trained musicians have more knowledge than non-musicians. That'll be different. But the other reason has to do with uh, just plain old expectations and, and what you think uh, is allowed. And if you don't have that knowledge, you won't know. Here's a perfect example. When I was a grad student at McGill, a student in the music department was doing a wonderful study. So he took unknown pieces of orchestral music, 
and chopped them up into sections, little sections, you know, 20 seconds, maybe even 10 seconds long. And uh, your task as a participant was to click on these sections and then guess, is this the beginning of a piece, the mm. middle of a piece, or the end? Mm. And I was recruited, I'm one of the rare non-musicians at McGill, I was recruited to participate in the non-musician group. I'll be damned if I knew. I was <laughs> just picking answers at random. Any little section I heard, as far as I was concerned, could work anywhere. Could work as a beginning, could work as a begin, uh, middle, could work as an end. Carol Crumhansel's work on tonality perception showed the same thing. We non-musicians don't have the knowledge to influence our perception. And without that knowledge, we're not making these strong distinctions between consonants and dissonance. We're, we're simply not. Cool. Um, yeah, I remember uh, one of the um, one of the things that we did um, in, I think it was music history, uh, it was kind of a similar thing. We had to just put together um, beginning, middle, and end. It was it wasn't unknown though. I think it was um, uh, one of the box songs mm -hmm. uh, pieces. Uh, so it was like a little bit easier because those have a pretty um, common or not common, pretty popular um, flow to it. Um, but it was it was not the easiest um, homework. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't easy for you guys. It makes me feel a little bit better because I thought, you know, I've worked in music. I should know. But I never worked, never worked in that style of music. And in popular music, especially in the alternative indie world where I worked, you learn to be open-minded to everything and mm -hmm. to ask the question that any three-year-old would ask, which is why. So if someone tells me this section is a beginning and it would never work as an end, I'm going to ask, well, why wouldn't it? Give me a good reason why I wouldn't. Uh, and I don't think anybody could say for sure, well, because, you know, the world would start turning in the opposite direction if you use that as an end. It just doesn't make sense. Um, cool. And then so the final uh, question I have for this section is, how does music theory apply to producers and engineers? It's good when they have it. It can help them explain the reasoning behind their decision-making. I had offered the example earlier of, uh, of the artist wanting one snare drum sound and the producer suggesting another snare drum sound. Or here's another example. The artist wants to sing this song in one key and the producer is suggesting a different key. If you've got music theoretic training, you might be able to describe in technical terms, here's my reasoning. But if you don't have that training, you can always say, uh, here's why I don't think it would work. In the case of the snare drum, for example, maybe that high piccolo snare that you want is going to sound like you're holding your nose and blowing it because it's overlapping right with your vocal range. And it's on the two and the four, it's sounding like ee, ee, ee. I suggest a deep dish snare to come down below your vocal range or perhaps to evoke those older soul records that I love so much. That's that's one explanation. Um, you might also suggest, um, well, I think that we should do this with an oboe and not with a cello, again, for a similar reason. The oboe is a higher spectral centroid. It's gonna evoke this 
emotion, whereas the cello might evoke that emotion. And so you don't necessarily need a music theoretic training to be able to have these conversations, although it helps. Awesome. Um, and then the, so kind of like the, the, oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm glad we have um, editing software so I can <laughs> take out the pauses. <laughs> um, so kind of the question I asked at the beginning of the whole uh, research project that I'm doing was why we, uh, why do we connect to music? Um, and so I was, I was wondering if you had kind of an answer for that, just to sum everything up, um, mm. or if there isn't really one set answer. Mm. One of the main arguments in my book is that music is functional. And so we will choose a given piece of music at any given moment and in any given context to provide a solution to an immediate problem. Mm. Or to put it a, a little bit better, to serve a function for you. Sometimes you want to be amped up. Sometimes you want to be calmed down. Sometimes you need to hear a melody that matches a feeling that you know you have and you can't quite reach down far enough into your psyche to tap and pull up into the light that feeling you just know you're angsty and you're feeling something and you have a sense that this record gonna find and extract that feeling for you sometimes you you want to you just want a companion you want to hear someone's voice and other times you you are you're in certain a certain rhythm you might be driving you might be working out you might be doing something that calls for kind of a timekeeper and then you're going to want the just right rhythm to accompany you so we choose music the same way that we choose food same way we choose fashion you go into a clothing store you probably have in mind what function you need this clothing to serve for you. You go right to that section of the store that sells casual wear or formal wear to pick out what you want. And we do it similarly with music. Of all the art forms, music is perhaps the most immediately functional. Nice. Uh, thank you. You're welcome. That was Dr. Susan Rogers. I just want to say again how much I appreciate her time and generosity and also take a moment to promote her new book, this is what it sounds like. Her and her co-writer, Ogi Ogas, essentially talk about what we've been discussing on this podcast, except way better and more in-depth. It is phenomenally written and expertly informative. I would also like to thank Ohio University's Honors Tutorial Program for allowing me the opportunity to create this show. Hosting a podcast is always something that I've wanted to do, and I'm grateful that I finally get the chance to do it. Now back to content. With this being the last episode... I'm going to attempt to wrap things up and tie a nice bow around everything. Several things stuck with me throughout my conversation with Dr. Rogers. First being how neither her nor many other successful producers or engineers have extensive backgrounds in music. For context, the role of a music producer is, as I see it, broken into two parts. First, to act as a conduit between the artist and the machine or people operating the machines. The producer needs to know the song so well they can anticipate what the artist will want added and be able to translate their wishes into technical jargon and apply it to their workstation. Second, the producer must be able to enhance the song creatively. They should know how to breathe life into a track, direct the artists to give their best performance, and add tasteful elements to the artist's song. This description leads people to believe that the producer should be a musician or at least have extensive musical knowledge. 
This notion, however, is misleading. Dr. Rogers said that while it can be helpful, it is not necessary. She cited record maker for Elton John to prove her point. I would also like to add current producer icon Rick Rubin as an example. Rick Rubin famously is not a musician, but has worked with big names such as Johnny Cash, The Beastie Boys, Run DMC, and Lana Del Rey. Why are Dr. Rogers, Rick Rubin, and Elton John's record makers so successful? Dr. Rogers talked about how when musicians listen to music, they focus on what she called the input, what the musicians are doing, how they're playing, and other technical aspects. Non-musicians, however, are able to focus almost entirely on the output of sound. She says that they are in the moment and feeling every bit of the essence of that song and not caught up in the technicalities. This is definitely an asset as a producer. Getting out of your head and stepping into the musician's head, as well as stepping into the song, are two of the most crucial aspects that you can do as a producer and something that I myself need to work on. I notice and can recall many times when I got caught up in thinking about the delivery of a song instead of looking at the big picture and overall connectability of it. Throughout this series, I have explored what makes people connect to music. By talking to our guests and experts, I can confidently say that there isn't just one thing that makes us like a song or connect to music, but a multiplicity of nuanced emotions, evolutionary traits, and personal tastes that dictate our connections. What a surprise. For whatever reason it is that you like songs, don't let other people tell you that you're wrong. Keep listening to Bach, The Beatles, Luke Combs, Trippy Red, or Dr. Dog. Your music is part of your personality, and therefore it is up to no one but you to comment on why you connect to it. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this series. <laughs>